Score Tracks on SFM with John Gerica. With John Gerica. Saturdays, 7 p.m. till 10 p.m. 11th of June 2010, it all began. South Africa took on Mexico and did not lose, which everybody was predicting. Massive losses, one all with one of the greatest goals ever in World Cup history. Forget Maradona, forget anybody else. Ah, that was the greatest goal ever. Left foot, hey? What? Oh, Michael Abramson was the commentator who had to describe that goal. I just ran out of words. Michael, how did you have enough words to describe that goal? Michael, are you there? All right, we seem to have lost Michael Abramson. He's supposed to be joining us on Skype. We'll try and get him on the line. We've got Brian Moffat-King on the line. We do. Uh, let's take Brian off hold. Brian Moffat-King, we, you were watching that. Well, how did you try and describe that goal? <laughs> Good evening, Jordan. I mean, I, I remember uh, I, I was watching the, the match at a, uh, a view that one of those puck views um, where I was uh, p- part of the public area. Oh, know? yes. I, I, I know Michael was actually doing commentary. Yeah. Already 2000 and a day. I was actually listening on, on radio and while I was watching at the stadium. And I still remember when he said, as Piwa Shabalala scores, goosebump material. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't scream or even shout because, <laughs> you know, two days before the World Cup, which is, which is a very interesting story. I'd lost my voice, you know. Um, <laughs> it's a rare thing. I, I never lose my voice, and well, all right. And I think, and, and I think, building up to to to, to the World Cup, yeah. uh, nerves literally hit me, you know, because this was going to be my first World Cup. I was going to be yeah. doing commentary. Mm. Remember, in two thousand and six, while I was still with SAFM, we were only doing reports on the two thousand and six World Cup in Germany, and I just joined the SABC at that stage, and. I moved to do commentary in 2000 in 2010, uh, just before the AFCON in Angola, and my first World Cup was coming up. Two days before the World Cup, after we had our own briefing, everything was done. One colleague said to me, which is, I think that's what scared me the most. He said to me, you realize you have the most difficult names to be dealing with. <laughs> All right, wait. I, I, need you, I need you to hold that thought because we're going to talk. That's a whole separate section that we're going to be talking about, the names of the World Cup. But I did ask. We got. All right. Uh, let's. I was going to ask Michael, and we'll hear what he's going to have to say in a moment. What words did he use to describe that goal? To an opponent. Marquez in the center of the park, plays it forward towards Giovanni Dos Santos, cut out though by Renin Renetzolognani, here goes South Africa, breaking quickly, good play, and forward, yeah, lovely ball towards Savalala, 50th cap, Savalala scores! Absolutely unbelievable! South Africa, he won't score anyone better than that. Incredible. The goal in the 55th minute for Chabalala. And South Africa score the opener at World Cup 2010. You've got to pinch yourself to believe this. What a classy goal it was, a terrific shot, the ball nestled in the top left corner of the goal. And Bafana, Bafana are no longer boys, it's a case of boys to men. There are men out there, 
brave-hearted men. They are celebrating as one. We are all celebrating as one. And then Marquez had to go equalise 20 minutes later. It's so irritating. Michael Abramson, the voice you heard there, joins us now. Michael, hopefully you can hear us now. Yes, I can hear you now perfectly, John. Thank there, you so much. There we go. The word you used is incredible. I think that's such a good word. It really is an incredible goal. It was in many respects because, as you say, nobody really gave South Africa a chance. Mexico were doing amazingly well. They'd beaten, uh, I think, Uruguay by six goals to nil in the warm-up to that tournament. And Uruguay are not a bad side. I mean, they got to the semifinals of the tournament. So they... Everybody was expecting Mexico just to, to turn up and knock South Africa over. And the fact that you're sitting there and just, you almost, as I said in the commentary, you've got to pinch yourself to believe that you're actually there in amongst thousands and thousands of fans commentating and watching your country score an opening goal of the World Cup. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is absolutely the highlight of any broadcasting career. I, I cannot even describe to you. I still get goosebumps listening mm. to that commentary again because... It just brings back so many amazing memories. One of those memories, we've got a great picture of you. Helen's put it up on uh, on the social medias, is just how cold it was. There's a picture of you here with gloves, <laughs> a scarf, a beanie, the headphones, probably three jackets. Yeah. Do you even remember the temperatures when that World Cup started? Absolutely. And the worst was at Ellis Park. As I did four venues in total in the tournament. I did a lot of the games at Soccer City, of course and then Loftus and, and Ellis Park, and then I think one game in Durban. And Durban was such a pleasure because it was about 10 <laughs> degrees warmer than anywhere else in the country. But I remember particularly at Ellis Park, it was about minus three degrees. Sure. And you're sitting there shivering and your teeth are chattering and you're trying just to, to be able to get words out and make it audible for the many, many listeners who are listening to your commentary. And we had a lot of overseas guests who uh, had were driving in their cars, for example, and had to have English commentary. So they were tuning in as well. And you had to get, as we'll discuss later, the names rights and all the pronunciation and everything else. But it was it was freezingly cold, John. Uh, but, but we didn't care at all because it was just so great to be there. I just seen an article now from May. Robin Kernow on CNN wrote this. I know I sound like my mother, but please pack your warm clothes for the World Cup. Remember, it's the middle of winter in Southern Hemisphere in June <laughs> and July. I worry that some first-time visitors will assume Africa is hot all the time. It's not. We have seasons too. <laughs> Brian Moffat King, I want to bring in you. You were at a fan park. I remember clearly that uh, for the World Cup, I was watching it on TV, and we made a thing to, to have the food and drinks of the country we were playing against. So I remember we had fajitas, and we had Mexican beer. We had Mexican hats on because it was just part of the atmosphere. Did, did you get into an atmosphere already by that first game? I was indeed. I mean, the build-up to... Uh uh, to, to the World Cup itself was a huge hype. We we had one workshop at the SABC. I remember two days before that. I mean, that was, was literally my first, my second tournament was working with Michael Abramson. Uh, I was the only, I mean, I was the novice amongst legends in, in the community team because uh, really 2000 and Michael Abramson, they had uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, they had Ronald Bongo was handling mm. the, the commentary in the Eastern Cape and the late Gil Manyapil was handling commentary alongside uh, all of us. I mean, all these other guys have all done multiple World Cups. I was doing my first World Cup as a commentator. And to be sitting there and having all these guys coaching you ahead to say you can do this. I remember Michael at a church with me while they're doing the upcon to say to me, you know what? I love what you're doing, buddy. Keep doing what you're doing. Let's focus on the World Cup and kill this one. And it was one of those when you got there, the vibe was there. When you were coming all these people into the country, 
because he started making friends on Facebook and so, so different social media platforms. When he arrived, the first thing I wanted was to get to understand what South Africa is all about. And mm. the, the nice thing was getting to be with these different people from different parts of the world. Um, I was mostly, Michael was mostly based in Gauteng. I was doing the other parts of the world. I was happy to be in Durban because I did a lot of matches in Durban and Bloemfontein was the other place. Uh, Nelspreet as well. Nelspreet was the home, by the way, to Chile. So it was therefore a Spanish capital sort of vibe in Nelspreet. And that's where the name thing came about. But but the vibe, if you're talking about the vibe and a build-up to the vibe, is that we were all excited. Nobody ever envisaged what was going to happen when you start picking up the mic and doing commentary. Mm-hmm. And you, you had all these overseas guests who were all listening to Radio 2000 everywhere we were. So you knew the massive pressure that came with that. You, you could never, ever join. If you had to tell me today that you want to be doing commentary in a World Cup in your own country, I'll tell you, key. It will never happen. <laughs> Michael, uh, as you heard, Brian's saying you're a veteran in the commentary. What was it? Did Did you feel the pressure? Or was it, as you say, it's exciting and it's great, but was it just another game? Well, firstly, I'd just like to thank Brian, who's a very respected colleague, for those very kind words. Um, John, I think in the build-up to each game, you're sitting there and you you sort of feel the weight of expectation on your shoulders because you know that if you get a player wrong or a player scores a goal and you can't quite see who it is because we were sitting literally sky high in the in the bleachers <laughs> at some of the stadiums. And it's not always easy to see exactly who somebody is, particularly if you don't know the teams that well. And we were doing a game a day pretty much for the whole tournament. So we were learning new players all the time. Uh, but I think once you uh, once they cross to you and you actually pick up the commentary, you forget about all of that. And then natural instinct kicks in and you just go with your commentary skills that you've developed over many, many years, mm. honing them in different sports and different avenues. And you just back yourself and you say to yourself, I'm good enough to be here because I wouldn't be here if I wasn't. And I've got a job to do and I have a huge responsibility and let's get on with it and just enjoy every second of it. And I think uh, that's what comes through in in the commentary when you, uh, once you get into the swing of things and once the game starts, you forget about all the pressures and you just go and try and do the best you can. Uh, Brian, it, 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 commentating a World Cup at the best of times, even if you're just doing it for your friends, is difficult. Knowing that you have those international <laughs> visitors, there might be Mexicans listening to you and you have to say Mexican names or Uruguay or North Korea. Uh, Michael, I'm going to ask you the same question. Brian, how did you get the names done? Because it's easy to read them, easy to read, but that's no. not what they sound like. No, it was not easy to read. I remember... Uh Mohamed Ali helped a lot in that because prior to the World Cup, he had sent out a a fanatic way of pronouncing words, in, names rather of all the players that are coming into the country. But also the advantage of doing the World Cup and being at a venue in your own country is the fact that you know the places so easily. So I was based, mostly I was in, um, for example, when I did my first game, which was in Durban, it was uh, Germany versus Australia. I happened to be in the same flight with the, the German officials, you know. Mm-hmm. So you had to go through everything, even though I knew most of the players, because Germany, we have done matches, a lot of their yes. matches. You were therefore sitting down with them, and I recorded every one of them. I know somebody felt like, that's a lot of admin work, but I recorded every one of them. Mm-hmm. And then I sat down, when I got to the hotel, the first thing I did was just play the soundbite at the background while going through my routine, mm-hmm. while meditating, preparing for the game, which was happening 10 hours after I'd landed. So that was a good thing. Then I, I went to Mbombela 
there I was with the Chilean fans at some 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 lodge in 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 Bombela where we are staying, and they were so happy because they said we were listening to you the other day. You know, we were driving from wherever, and it's nice to see you. So picture moment, and then from there they say, "What can we do for you?" I need to know how to pronounce the names. Wow! Okay. And instead of telling you how the vowels come together, how you change certain thing, and North Korea did one North Korea game. Mm-hmm. And I remember the North Korean guy was talking to me. His English was not the best, but he got the message through and I knew what I had to do. <laughs> but the biggest trick was doing a match involving Greece and Nigeria. Oh, no. Greece. Those long names. Yes. And uh, I met this, this lady. I, I missed my flight in Durban because I was on a five o'clock flight after having done the game between Germany and Australia. I got to my hotel at two o'clock and the guy forgot to wake me up the reception forgot to wake me up in the morning so i was driving from durban to bloemfontein but i had to via the airport to change my car then i met this lady who's a uh, greek and he said having a conversation and he said to me you know what so what i'm gonna do give me your number we'll have a conversation i'll send you stuff and she sent me like i had all the names written down and written them phonetically but she pronounced them for me perfectly when i go wow. to the stadium i literally was a greek <laughs> you, you were there, SAFM, chatting to Brian Buffer King there, and Michael Abramson also joining us via Skype. We're talking about the 2010 World Cup. Going to get onto memories and other things in a moment. Uh, we want to know your favorite memories, your highlights of the 2010 FIFA World Cup in South Africa. It's 10 years ago on the 11th of June uh, that uh, South Africa hosted the 2010 World Cup. Uh, a couple of tweets and SMSs coming in. We'd like to get your views. SMS 41391 or give us a call. 0891-104207. Say that number again. 0891-104207. Let's share some memories. Uh, Sikenya uh, uh, Smith says the best FIFA World Cup ever. The world needs the sounds of South Africa again. Uh, we're going to go to Michael Abramson in the moment. Tweet at SFM Radio and at John Herica. Get involved on the social medias as well. Michael, how did you get the names down? Yeah, pretty much um, similar story to what Brian did. I think um, my gymnastics training, believe it or not, <laughs> I did a lot of commentary on gymnastics events, really helped me because uh, you had Polish names and Russian names that went on for about 20 syllables long. And I was doing television commentary, radio commentary, and stadium announcing or event announcing at all those events. So you had to get the names perfect. Otherwise, you would mispronounce them on every medium. Mm. So I think uh, that training really helped. And then what I did was... Um, a lot of phonetic sounding getting the names right in that regard but also i found journalists in the different countries and if there were names that i wasn't sure of i went up to various journalists from that country and said can you just say this name for me and then i wrote it down phonetically and locked it in and obviously um i've been training my memory for many many years Mm -hmm. so that memory training sort of kicked in as well and then another trick that i used was uh when i was driving to the stadium i had a cassette this shows you how ancient i was in those <laughs> days but i had had a, a tape deck in my car and because i was mainly based in Gauteng, i generally drove to a lot of the games or at least drove to the sabc and took the the transport to the stadium so i had a lot of idle time in my car so what i would do is i would record facts about every single player onto a recording device and play it back and i do that a few games in advance so for example if i knew i was doing say holland against north korea for argument's sake I would play the tape of those teams and just pick up information, listen to it a few times. So when I got to the stadium, I didn't have time to refer to notes, but mm. I'd already embedded it in my memory. So when I could sort of throw out facts during the commentary that I thought would be relevant without having to sift through papers and papers. 
And I think that technique st- stood me in really good stead as well. Oh, if you're listening to radio and you want a tip, that's one of the best tips I've ever heard. Uh, Roma for King, let's talk about the logistics. I was a fan. I had to, you, know, you go park at the parking place, then you had to take the bus to the bus place, then you had to walk to the walk place. What was it like as a commentator to be able to get into the grounds? I think the advantage of being an official broadcaster has its own packs. And, and Radio 2000, uh, as you know, SABC was the official broadcaster of the World Cup in South Africa. Radio 2000 became the dedicated radio station to be bringing the World Cup to the people. So it meant, therefore, we had our own separate packages when it came to, you know, especially for me because I was not doing any matches in Gauteng, but I think two matches only did in Gauteng. The rest of the matches were outside of Gauteng. It was a bliss. And it was pure, it was pleasure. Michael was stuck with most of the time with the crew. I was driving alone. You know, I pick up my ticket from uh, whichever hotel and just stack it on my car and drove because I was doing the same venue almost every day, every second day. Right. The guys knew me. So when I got this, like, ah, Mr. SABC. So I just drove <laughs> in, which was the advantage of that. But I know guys that, but, but the logistics, the crazy part about it, John, was having to leave Bloemfontein today. After doing a game, you finish around 12, 11-ish at, at night, you get to the yes. hotel around 12, and you're on the first flight at 5 in the morning because you need to connect and get to Joburg. Sure. From Joburg, you need to connect to go to Nelspreet. When you get to Nelspreet, you arrive in Nelspreet at what, 9 o'clock? Nobody has checked out yet at the hotel. <laughs> you're literally stranded for the whole day until it is 2 o'clock when you can check in because your game is the following day. Right. So those, those I think those were the, the, the things that, that taught you how to... Listen, I talk a lot, you know that, so I could make friends easily and get to be at different places, and that, that became an easier thing. But it was it was a learning curve because you you had to be on time. You had mm-hmm. to you had to make sure that if they say you're picking up the stuff at ten, you got to be at ten. FIFA time was FIFA time, but it was never an African time. <laughs> Michael, you you mentioned the car. What were the, what were your logistics mm-hmm. like? Uh, not quite as as hectic because I had very very few flights. I was lucky enough to be. Or lucky enough or unlucky enough, I suppose you could look at it both ways, to be based in Gauteng. And there were many, many games in Gauteng. So every every day for the first 15 days of the tournament, there was either a game at Soccer City or Loftus or Ellis Park. So I was sort of alternating between those venues. So generally, it was more a case of having to prepare information and do a lot of statistics. Because, as you know, I'm sort of known in the industry as Mr. T- Mr. Statistics. So uh, for me, getting facts and information was very important. So it was a case of coming home after a game. And for that opening game, for example, we got home probably one o'clock in the morning. And then I would sit up for an hour or two and prepare my stats for the next day and then wake up early the next morning, read the latest reports to see if there were any injuries I needed to know about or any of those facts. And then depending on where the game was, either drive through to the stadium uh, and have its own logistical issues in that regard or drive to the SABC and take uh, their transport and go through and get to a stadium maybe three or four hours before the game starts and then try and acclimatize yourself, get used to the atmosphere, try and visualize what is about to happen, look for interesting bits of information that other people might not be able to find that you could possibly use in your commentary. Because what I did is... Um, in terms of research, I researched a lot of info that I never used because it just wasn't relevant at the time. But I kept it in the back of my mind. And if it did become relevant, then I would try and throw it in. So I like to have these additional facts that people maybe wouldn't be able to acquire elsewhere on mm. a different medium. So 
uh, it was mainly a lot of preparation rather than worrying about the logistics of actually getting there. I was going to say it was two years after the first uh, blackout, so there might very well have been power outages <laughs> and things for you to have to talk for 20 minutes. Absolutely, but I, I don't think for Brian or, or myself it would have scared us. I think we, we would have loved the opportunity just to relate what we were experiencing, so that's not really a problem. Take a quick break. We're chatting to Brian Moffat King and Michael Abramson, commentators at the 2010 FIFA World Cup. We're remembering a number of things. We're hearing about their job, but I want to talk about what the mood was like in the nation. We want to take your calls. What are your favorite memories, your SMSs and your WhatsApp, your favorite memories of 2010? Let us know. Here with SAFM, it's Backtracks. That's the sound of a victory. Tell me who sings that song. Sorry, Sport Tracks. I do Backtracks and Sport Tracks. It's very confusing. It's Sport Tracks you're listening to. That's R. Kelly. Obviously, sign of victory. It's R. Kelly. How could I not know that? 29 minutes to 10 if you're watching the time. Michael Abramson, it says here, one of my all-time favorite English commentators to ever grace our broadcasting landscape in the country. It's from Mr. T in Johannesburg. And uh, Mbu says, enjoying the interview with the great commentators. Thanks, John. It's my absolute pleasure. Cool Chicken Ben put this together. Michael, let's talk about the mood in 2010. Um, obviously, uh, before any big event, doesn't matter where it is, Olympic Games, doesn't matter. There's the, the worry and the, the, the things that might not happen. There was the money spent in the stadium. There were the ticket prices. It was all confusion. Everybody was writing it off as going to be terrible, but it wasn't. What, was it a surprise for you having done Confed Cup leading up to it, or did you know that it was going to be great? No, I think I, I realized that it, it would be great because we've hosted big events before and South Africa always turns it on when they need to. We've hosted, obviously, on a slightly smaller scale, the Rugby World Cup uh, in 95, the Cricket World Cup in 2003. We have big athletics events and major events in, in some of the big sporting codes. And it's always been a success. There's been a lot of worry, a lot of concerns that things might go wrong, the crime element or, and all sorts of negatives spin that some people try to put on the tournament. But I think overall, there was such a feeling of euphoria and goodwill amongst uh, the nation where I think we were all so proud as South Africans to be hosting the world and to showcase our country in the most positive and beautiful light yeah. that uh, everything just sort of fitted into place. And if something didn't work, then it got ironed out pretty quickly. And I think South Africans are particularly good at that, at staging big events. So I wasn't too worried that things would go horribly wrong. And I think at the end of the day, as one of the listeners said, it was probably one of the best World Cups ever. Mm. I'm just suddenly remembering you're only allowed the one beer and the beer was very expensive in the <laughs> stadiums. There was a whole debate about that. There's little things that sort of we've forgotten and get reminded of. It's quite nice. Brian Moffakey, I want to talk to you. Uh, a Soweto born and bred, um, obviously, the township changed. They fixed up uh, the the FNB Stadium, which was just a big hole in the ground, to become the the what was it? Soccer City. It was renamed during that time. What was it like being a Soweto resident and seeing those changes leading up to the big tournament? It was unbelievable. Um, we, we you know we we always I think as South Africans, one thing that we 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 never seem to appreciate is how united we get when the need arises. And when you when you see South Africans forget the race of all different walks coming together and celebrating a grand moment in Africa, you know, fellow Africans coming together and celebrating that. 
the Sowetans embracing everything that's got to do with the World Cup. Football is culture in, in, in the township generally. Mm, mm. But, you know, for, for, for us to be at, at, at a place where you, you're watching these players on your telly and for the first time in Africa, you're having these players right in your own backyard. Then Lionel Messi was still an upcoming player. We got to meet him then, you know. Um, you're talking about the Spanish team that eventually conquered all mm. right at the end. Your Iniestas, your Xavi's and uh, your David Villa, everybody else. You got to rub shoulders with those players at your own backyard in Soweto, in the gutters of all. In, in a township, you're seeing those people moving around. And some were training around the stadium at some stage, mm. you know. Uh, so you... You just never, in, and at that stage, everybody wanted to be part of that. Everybody wanted the country to succeed. Everybody wanted to see Africa doing well. We wanted to show the world that it is, Africa is not what everybody believes Africa is. That as Africans, we can deliver a world-class event. And boy, did we deliver. <laughs> uh, Michael, uh, obviously, being a commentator, and you, and you see Orlando Stadium, uh, get knocked down, get built back up again. The FNB is a completely different place. Mombella Stadium, mm. all these stadia were built. When when you walked into those stadiums the first time, it must have been amazing for you compared to what they were five years before that. Oh, 100%, John. And I remember the very first time I walked into FNB or Soccer City, uh, it was for that very controversial warm-up game, where, which South Africa won 5-0 oh, with... Wow. Yeah. A few very, let's say, dubious refereeing decisions that that helped the cause. And I just remember sitting over there in amongst the fans because at that stage we didn't have uh, proper... We weren't sitting in the broadcast facilities behind glass. We were sitting literally in the stands among the fans watching South Africa play. And I just felt almost intimidated, intimidated and swallowed up by this bowl-like atmosphere. And I just thought, there, I'm sitting here with about 100,000 people in a stadium watching and broadcasting... Uh, watching one of my favorite sports and broadcasting to who knows how many people <laughs> around the world. Mm. And it, it was just uh, intimidating, but in, in, a, in another way, it was an immense feeling of pride that South Africa could have such beautiful stadia and could be able to showcase our national sport uh, uh, to the world in such a, 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 in such a terrific theater, so to speak. And uh, it was just a, a huge feeling of pride that I think we all felt walking into stadia and just realizing what South Africa was doing and had done. Uh, Brian, I, I found a, a you know, Facebook reminds you of some of the stupid things that you said a long, long time ago. One of the things I said was, I hope that all the white people that are watching football now will remain Sundowns fans or Pirates fans or something. Do you, do you think it changed not just traditional football fans, but do you think the World Cup 10 years later still has more football fans in South Africa? It still does, but I think you know we also we also we all we all have to be realistic at some point as well. Uh, John is that things are tougher now. From a financial point of view, people can't afford to go to the stadium as regularly as they used to before, mm. and also because of the exposure we have to international football. So, do I want to go to the stadium if I can watch seven matches at a go at home, in the safety of my own home, in the comfort of my own home, and instead of being stuck in traffic and all of that. Mm. I think that's the, that's, that's the huge thing we need, we need to remember, that we are spoiled as South Africans with the amount of uh, stuff you're exposed to, as opposed to some people who can't afford to even do any of those things. Um, but I think the World Cup was, was a huge, huge... Uh, it, 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 it broke a few barriers as far as 
people are concerned, those who always look down on the sport, somehow realize, you know what, we can actually enjoy this together. Yeah, I tell the story. I think you organized tickets for a Soweto Derby for me to go to before the World Cup. Would never have gone because you see it on TV. And I thought, let's just go and experience what it's like before I have to go sit with 100,000 foreigners. Just go see what it's... You you can't go and support the World Cup without supporting local football. And And once you have done that, John, it changes your mindset. Yes. Because the experience itself, you you now feel you're watching the game at home. Versus when you're watching the game in the stadium, oh, yeah, are two different. You, you you don't feel the vibe. Every time I get invited to matches, I get given VIP tickets. Mm, mm. But where do you find Brian? Right at the bottom. <laughs> are you in the, the French? French? That's where the vibe is. <laughs> uh, you, you got your loaves of bread and your cabbages, Brian. <laughs> Just asking. <laughs> Uh, Michael Abramson, uh, I want to talk to you. We spoke to Craig Ray last week about the building up to the World Cup. The Bulls held two matches at the Orlando Stadium. How important do you think, we asked Craig about this, how important do you think that was as well for the country leading up to the World Cup? I think it was great because it's it's showed a willingness to for different races and and, uh, sporting codes to embrace one another. And I think that was so important because, again, it's a sign of unity and it just shows um, everybody, no matter what your background is, no matter what your bank balance is, no matter what, uh, where you went to school or what your love is and what you do in your day-to-day life, uh, that we can all come together as South Africans and appreciate the moment. So I think what, what rugby did as a gesture was a, was a really good one, just pulling together. And I, fi- I find also with a lot of sporting events that we have, you know, the different sporting codes always send messages to the captain. Like for example, when the Springboks won the World Cup last mm. year, we had a situation that um, the soccer and crickets and various other sports reached out and immediately sent messages and we all felt a national pride so i think that definitely helped to bring the nation together as well and i think it was a wonderful gesture all around let's go to bonakele in cape town evening bonakele yeah good evening uh um, john uh john and, and your guests <laughs> Woo, what an interesting topic yes I just want to remind your guest about the Mira Sox. And uh, Brian mentioned something very important. You know, I thought the country will be united. Black and white. You understand the, the time it was so united. Mm. I mean, colorful Mira Sox. You understand, you know, uh, even the crime rate was very, very low, so to speak. I mean, uh, you mentioned about the stadium that were built. I mean, the, 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 it was very good. I wish we could back then I, I don't know how did you get you did you get to a match Bonakele? no 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 look i was watching on tv so mm. to speak but um, i was just checking the mood you understand yeah yeah. It was one of the greatest things, Bonakele, and it happened in the 95 World Cup as well, was you know, the, the, the noise of the neighborhood. Absolutely. And the Vuzelas, everyone. Yeah. So was, yeah, you might have been, the Mira Sox, you understand? You might have been watching it by yourself on TV, but when the goals were scored, then suddenly the Vuvuzela in the whole neighborhood goes mad. That was great. everywhere, and then we unite black and white and you understand, yeah. I, I wish we can go back to, ni- to 2010, so to speak. Right. What a lovely show. We'll, we'll, have, to, Thank you very we'll much. have to host another football Tell me something. Yes. You know, I want to ask a question to those Go for it. Go, go, go. Yes. Uh, are they still working in the SABC? I think, right, let's find out. We'll ask them quickly. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Cheers, Kelly. There's, there's no sports. <laughs> Brian, are you still working at the SABC? Yeah, there's the laugh. Once, once he starts laughing. Uh, yes, John. Okay, Michael. Uh, you're Michael. You're on and off. 
Um, yeah, more off than on, unfortunately, these days because of lots of other commitments, but uh, not particularly out of choice. I mean, I'd love to come back and be able to to commentate again, but uh, we'll see what the future holds. There's only so many sports. Uh, we'll, we'll have to bring in, we'll see if you can commentate on eSports. Maybe you can do some CSGO <laughs> computing gaming commentary or something. I'm game for anything. <laughs> uh, okay, want, let's talk. Uh, let's talk about those um, everything else that was happening around. Uh, you know, the the little things we've forgotten. There was Sepp Blatter ran the country for the month. Uh, as I mentioned, the beer, the sponsorships, all that kind of thing was involved. It was a bit of an eye opener, uh, Brian. Let me ask you this: as a as a football goer in South Africa, it was an eye opener. Things were different. Tickets cost a lot more money. Beers cost a lot more money. The transport was completely different. As a regular football goer, was it a shock to the system or was it like, I'm okay, it's a World Cup? It was a shock. It was a total shock, John. Um, but you know what, what I expected to see happening after the World Cup? I expected to see the clubs around the country taking up the same formula and running with it. Yes. Because that shows that Football has money, and you can make money if you control things. I mean, I remember the billboards at uh, the uh, Fistek Stadium. You know, the official sponsors of the stadium, you know the name of the sponsors, but those were all covered up. Yeah, FNB, stadium FNB Stadium. Showed only, showed only uh, FIFA, uh, FIFA, FIFA sponsors based on their tiers, mm, you know. Mm. And, yeah, I'm not a beer drinker, thank goodness, because <laughs> I don't think I could stomach what was being given. You know, um, uh, I, I remember the, the only fast food I enjoyed was the one that we still have in the country, and, and it was the official one. So yes. we had fun having that throughout. Uh, I think my experience was more on the, the diversity of the different cultures we had in the country, because mm -hmm. then I found myself, for the first time, at the tacos. You know, I had a proper tacos made for Mexicans, and I was sitting and thinking, no wonder the Americans love tacos. Mm. You know, and and different guys were here. There were some guys who came from Nigeria who it was. You remember that at that stage, all African countries were supporting each other. Yes. So you were sitting there, and 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 you you started understanding different cultures and how they cook certain things and all of that. And we can forget the moment of the, the that uh, Luis Suarez handball in the line. I remember one of uh, Michael Wilson's close friend, and uh, he wrote uh, he, 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 one of the writers for a newspaper in Durban, was totally irritated by me when the goal was almost scored and I was talking about Suarez in the borderline because he was like the only thing that commentator could have said was bloody agent. <laughs> 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 Let's, we've got to start wrapping up. Mike, there, uh, Brian mentioned this briefly, the, the legacy that was supposed to come out of the 2010 World Cup. Cup. We've got the great stadium. Uh, I drove past yeah. the FNB the other day. It's not obviously not as great as it was. And uh, some of the training facilities that were built and, and blocked off, they're kind of falling away. Do we have the legacy that Danny O'Dan imagined? Uh, difficult to say. I think in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. But I mean, if you look at, at what happens to, in any major sporting event, I was lucky enough to go to the Athens Olympics, mm. which is probably my career highlight together with this uh, FIFA World Cup in your own country. And in 2004, I mean, Athens was so proud of their stadium and everything they built. And a few years later, Everything has just collapsed and uh, landed up in rack and ruin for, for the most part. So I suppose it uh, depends on how you look at it. In some ways, it was great to showcase the country. I think it did wonders for tourism for the next few years, certainly. 
Um, do we have the legacy going forward now, 10 years down the line? I'd have to question that. Yeah. Uh, Stormers are moving to the Cape Town City Stadium, which is great. Uh, mm-hmm. The the one in Durban doesn't get used. Most of it doesn't get used as much as it should. That's a whole another debate. Uh, but it does get used for football. Mombela gets used. Limpopo gets used. The good news is the stadiums aren't doing nothing. It's it's those smaller stadiums, those smaller training grounds that seem to have disappeared, Brian. It is indeed. I mean, uh, I, I, I love what the guys in KZN are doing because whenever they have the peak matches, your category matches, they take them up to Mozambique Stadium, but they're still using those supposedly training fields. You know, the stadium you had in Kings Walitini yeah. as well as Princess Makoko Stadium have been used by both Coronaros and Amazul respectively, which shows that at least there's still something that the World Cup gave back and has been utilized very well. Uh, the Surre Kulu Meisol um, Racing Peace Stadium in Claremont also is being utilized as an alternative venue by Golden Arrows. Murray's back have their Harry Kuala Stadium, which is not really part of the World Cup, but then at least they're still using that. I believe, you know, with more teams coming up and uh, with more money pumped into football, you could see more of those stadiums being used regularly. Uh, the fact that the Pumas now and then you find them playing their rugby in, in Bombella and so yeah. forth also does give a good thing. Bluefontaine, you know, we know that you have the, the you, 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 you have the teams from there. So I think with time, if, if, if you have the right money injected into sports for those venues to be utilized, they will be used for sport generally. But you also have concerts that are coming up. I mean, uh, I think the, the stadium management mm. have found a way to say, if football is not being played or sport is not being played, we'll host events. You mm. know, you'll have concerts in a stadium. Yes, the grass suffers, but at some stage, somebody has to pay the bills. Let's hope we can eventually have those things again. Uh, Michael, besides the incredible goal, that Chabalala goal that opened it up, what was your yeah. highlight of the 2010 World Cup? I suppose commentating on the final was uh, a, a dream that uh, any broadcaster anywhere in the world would uh, love, extra even though South time. Africa weren't involved. But, but certainly uh, commentating on the final, that Chabalala goal, there was also uh, there was some incredible games. There was a game between... I think it was Slovakia or Slovenia, I don't remember which, and uh, USA played at Ellis Park, which ended 2-all. An incredible game with high, high-quality football that nobody expected to be a good game at all. And when I, when I was given that game to do, I thought, oh, my word, do I really have to do this? Mm-hmm. And, and I sat there and I was pleasantly surprised by the huge quality of football on display and the incredible action that took place in that game. But uh, John, I'll just, uh, if I leave you with maybe a, a very interesting fact from World Cup 2010, I don't know if you, I'm sure you probably have come across this, and Brian, I'm sure, will know the answer as well. Do you know the only team that were undefeated in, in World Cup 2010? Of all the nations who played, all, all 32 nations, there was only one team that were undefeated in the tournament. Do you know who they were? Only one team that was undefeated, so they would have... Undefeated, who didn't lose a game. They would have drawn all of their games in the group, but still lost... I was going to say South Africa, but South Africa... Yeah, it was South Africa, because they beat France, they drew, and then they won. Yes. No, South Africa lost 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 their second game. But I'll tell you what the answer is. New Zealand. Would you believe New Zealand, who were drawn in the same group as Italy and various other teams? I think they they drew all three of their matches, didn't go through because of a goal difference situation. And they were the only team, not even Spain, who won the tournament, uh, went undefeated. Because Spain lost their opening game to Switzerland. But New Zealand, astonishingly enough, were the only team at FIFA 2010 to not lose a game and still uh, and progress through the tournament. So there's a... 
fascinating stat for our listeners. And they, uh, the, the, the important thing with that as well is Italy finished bottom in the group of Group F. That was yes, a big thing as well. Did. Remember, Italy was supposed to go on and win it. <laughs> you always have to remember that part, George. Oh, no, you? that's what I mean. Uh, I was an Ivory Coast fan at the time. Ivory Coast got knocked out, but Brazil and Portugal, it's kind of okay. Gents, My mind was on Ghana. My money for yeah, the I remember was Ghana. on Ghana. Uh, I, I remember the Ghana-USA game. Uh, where Boateng scored a goal almost towards the centre half, and uh, that for me was unbelievable because they played in Rustenburg, nobody gave them a chance, mm. and they eventually yes. moved and played against the semi-final. They played against Uruguay as well. Yeah. So I mean, it was for me it was a very good run to be following the story of Ghana, because you know your dead AU uh, in 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 what six months before the World Cup, we're merely been have just been promoted, have been played in the 2009 Under 20 World Cup. We're just moving to the senior team in 2010 and January to play the AFCON. To find themselves playing in a World Cup mm. was unbelievable. Gents, we need to wrap it up. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much. And hopefully there'll be some football on the telly soon. No, That'll be great, John, to Thank indeed. you so much. Thanks, Brian. Good to chat. <laughs> Brian Moffat-King and Michael Abramson, commentators at the 2010 FIFA World Cup.